Baskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Elizabeth Yin. Elizabeth is the co-founder and general partner of Hustle Fund. Hustle Fund is a venture capital fund investing in founders at the pre-seed and seed stages. In this episode, we discuss learnings from working with Tony Shea from Link Exchange and Zappos, why Silicon Valley is unique and why Canadian founders should consider spending time there, differences between Canadian and American founders, what Hustle Fund looks for in founders at the earliest stages, what it was like raising Hustle Fund's first fund, and much, much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Elizabeth Yin. Elizabeth, I'd like to just start with what kind of interested you in tech in that space? What kind of got you fired up? And you worked at Google, which is a really interesting company. Uh, And what was that experience like? I I don't know exactly kind of what timing you were there when it was like super early, kind of midway through. How did you get into it? I think for me, getting into my career has been very much a function of time and place. So I'm from Silicon Valley. I grew up during the dot-com boom of the 1990s. And actually, it is kind of an interesting story how I, how I did get into this. Um, when I was in ninth grade, first year of high school here, I was talking with my best friend at school, and she said, oh, you know, my, my cousin Tony is starting a company And do you want to help him out during the break? And I had nothing going on. And so I was like, okay, I don't know what this startup thing is, but sure, I'll help. I I don't really know if I can help, but whatever. So we go to Tony's office during the break and it's super chaotic, right? Like there's pizza boxes strewn everywhere. It's totally messy. People are running around. They're taking meetings with random people walking in and out the door constantly. Um, Sometimes Tony is playing janitor, literally, because this place is a mess. And sometimes he's, you know, meeting really important seeming people. And sometimes he's working on the computer, on their website, etc. And I love that. I absolutely love that chaos. And I knew on that day that that was what I wanted to do when I grew up. Now, I didn't really know anything about what this startup did or how they made money or anything about the business aspect. But fast forward, this company sells to Microsoft for a purported, you know, 200 million bucks or so. And and Tony made, I think, more than 100 million. I'm not really sure. Whatever the exit is. And I was just totally floored because I wasn't even thinking, oh, you could make money in this kind of environment. Well, it would turn out that actually my my friend's cousin, Tony, would go on to be um, even more famous. And he eventually became the CEO of Zappos as an early investor in that company. And that Tony was actually the late Tony Shea. And and from that, he would end up you know becoming a mentor of mine. Um, but that was really sort of the gateway into this world. My parents were not in tech. My parents didn't have a startup or anything like that. But it was from this exposure when I was in school 
in the 90s here in Silicon Valley, very much time and place that I ended up really just falling in love with startups and knowing that that's what I wanted to do with my career when I grew up. So you asked me about Google. I I ended up working at Google. I wasn't really early there. I was there post, certainly post IPO, but I was there during their growth period when they had about 20,000 people in their whole company. Now I think they have over 20,000 in Mountain View alone, which is their headquarters. So I was kind of there during a growth period. For me, I was there to to learn. There were a lot of smart people. Of course, the food was amazing. But to me, it was also still a very large company. I think what I learned the most is here's a company that had started out small and very nimble. And all of a sudden, there were more new people than old people. Uh, by new and old, I don't mean age-wise, but I mean like having joined the company and seniority-wise, there that no one really knew what was happening when I joined. And that was an eye-opener around, all right, here are the things you should do and shouldn't do in a high-growth company, and how do you rein in the chaos? And so I was only there for about a year, actually. I told myself I would, you know, get to a year and then leave to start my own company. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. But the people were phenomenal. Before we ta- uh, talk about the the venture you went to, to go start, I'm just really curious about, about Tony there. He's just uh, kind of iconic in, in the tech space uh, for sure. And I'm just kind of curious, I'm sure you learned a lot of things from him over your career, but um, was there kind of like one or two things that just kind of really stick out to you that have really kind of defined maybe just how you just how you even operate, how you treat people, how you do anything. I think more than most people I've ever met in my life, one thing he was very good at was constantly going back to first principles and questioning everything. So you know how we go through life and people tell us these adages. In tech, for example, for a long time, people said, oh, you should build a company in Silicon Valley. You shouldn't build a company elsewhere. So there are all these adages that we just take for granted and assume that they're correct. And usually these adages are based on some level of reason and thinking at some point in time. But things change. And he was really good at going back to first principles and reviewing these adages and saying, okay, well, actually, does this still make sense? And so there were a number of business decisions that I had seen him make over the years that really went against the grain that people just blindly follow, even to this day, I would say, where he would say, actually, this no longer applies or this no longer makes sense. So we're going to do things differently. And he was not afraid to be one of the first people to do things differently. So for example, when he was at Zappos. So he, a lot of people think he was the founder of Zappos. He was not, but he was a very early angel investor and quite influential in the company. And eventually he became a co-CEO there and eventually the CEO. And one of the decisions that they had to make was around geography. Again, going back to this age of, oh, you should build a company in San Francisco or Silicon Valley. And he took a look and realized, well, you know, actually that doesn't make sense. And it especially doesn't make sense for our business. Times have changed. This is a shoe company fundamentally. So what kind of people do we need to be successful for this company? We actually don't need boatloads of engineers. We're building a website to sell shoes. So let's move this company to a lower cost area so that way we can do fulfillment of the shoes and we can hire people who actually you know, don't need such high wages. And, you know, we can compete on that compared to here in the Bay Area, which is so expensive. So he moved the company to Henderson, Nevada. And that was very controversial. A lot of people were like, well, why would you do that? It, you know, people always say, move your company to Silicon Valley. But this, I mean, he did this, you know, certainly more than a decade ago, many, many years ago. Now you start to see people say, oh, yeah, you can build a company anywhere. But he was very he was very much one of the first people to actually just believe no this doesn't make sense anymore and went into what launch bit was that your first time as a founder i'm sure you like you mentioned you know you were you working at tony's company a little bit in high school and i'm sure at google you knew tons of coworkers that were going off to start things but was that your first time just you starting something what was that like? What was that experience like? It was, but Launchbit as the idea itself was not the first idea. In fact, actually, 
I'd say I went through a period of my life where I, I tried a whole slew of different what you might call side projects or work with different potential co-founders, um, many whom didn't work out, you know, just I, I would call it very much an exploratory phase of my life and um, just had no idea what I was doing. So, you know, in the end, we built out Launchbit as the idea, this essentially email ad network, but that was not the first idea, but it was part of a whole slew of sort of being a first time founder for sure. What made Launchbit different than other kind of maybe ideas or side projects you're working on? Was there something that, was it just you had gotten enough reps and you were kind of like ready to go? Was it just a better idea and like timing? I'm just kind of curious, like what made that one stick out versus maybe other things you're working on? I think if I were to describe to somebody a lot of the mistakes I made in the very beginning as a first time founder, a lot of people would just laugh because I think the sophistication level of founders has gone up tremendously. And in part, it's because we also just have more knowledge out there on the internet. Like you can watch YouTube videos all day on how to start a company and you can get a lot of best practices just from doing that. I'll give you an, a concrete example. Like, you know, some somebody I deeply uh, respect for these ideas, um, Eric Reese, who created the Lean Startup, you know, that was not a philosophy when I started my company. Nowadays, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, lean startup. I got to go and do customer discovery or customer development. I got to, you know, build a minimum viable product and a, a prototype and try to de-risk the most risky thing as quickly as possible. Like there is a framework now on how you should think about building a startup. I mean, it's still not a step-by-step -step manual. No one's going to tell you what steps to do. But I think People are very aware of, all right, if you're building a software company, usually the biggest risk is actually customer acquisition. And in particular, not only getting customers who want to pay for your product and validate the demand, but then the second layer is in making sure that you can acquire customers repeatedly and eventually profitably. Those are kind of the steps you need to take. But back then, nobody talked about that. And back then, it was very unclear as you kind of muddle your way through building a startup what you should do. So a lot of my earlier iterations on these side projects were, frankly speaking, I've made the mistake many times before of just like building something ad nauseum and then nobody wants it. And really, it should be a much more iterative process. And that was something I learned along the way. So by the time we got to launch bit, uh, you know, actually, Eric had been writing on the internet about Lean Startup and his philosophies. The book had not yet been published still, so this was still quite early, but I read some of those articles and I, it was an aha moment for me where I felt like, wow, I, had, I should have been thinking in this framework all along. Gosh, I feel so silly. Really what we should be doing is we should be doing the least amount of work possible to de-risk the, the biggest risks and so when we built Launchbit, actually, we didn't build a product at all on day one. We started selling ads on day one and essentially doing everything manually. We didn't have a way for people to pay us. We didn't build out a payment processing system. I had people pay me on my personal PayPal account back then. So we did all these janky things that seemed so counterintuitive but yet really sped up our iteration and experimentation. It's kind of an interesting segue there because you're kind of talking about, you know, people being able to go out and kind of learn the frameworks and processes that exist. And you ultimately you joined 500 startups and really they're all about, you know, accelerating founders, helping founders, investing in founders. What did you really take away from that experience? Was that your first time kind of maybe more formalized, like, you know, working with founders on a regular basis? I'm sure maybe you had done some advising or angel investing previously. But, you know, what was that experience like from a first time? That I think being at an accelerator gave me eyes into lots of what I call reps. So you're right. Like, you know, having been around here after my exit with Launchbit, I started doing a lot of angel investing and advising primarily in friends companies to hopefully help them avoid some of these mistakes that we're talking about right here. That seems so silly in retrospect. But at 500 startups or really any other accelerator program, they invest in a ton of companies. While I was there, I led about 200 deals. And, you know, these accelerators, they just 
invest in hundreds or thousands of companies a year. So you really get to work with a lot, a lot of companies and you get to invest in a lot, a lot of companies. And that just gives you a lot of reps around what good looks like. And I think that actually for anybody who may have aspirations of really taking angel investing seriously or getting into VC, I really think the best education actually is to work at an accelerator, like go and work at, you know, you name it, Techstars 500, whatever it is, or mentor at any of these places. And you'll get to really see a lot of companies. And in particular, during a batch, if you meet with these companies two or three times over the course of the few months, you'll learn a lot about how companies progress and how quickly they iterate and how focused they are. And these are things you don't see when you're seeing a company pitch. But when you're at a program like this, you get to see velocity. You get to see what people do over a time period and how they work. And I think that that working is a lot more indicative of how a founder is. Like, are they really a great founder versus how they pitch? What led to the idea for for Hustle Fund? Um, you know, I think the, the things you've been talking about, even from like our, like the beginning of the conversation have really shown that like, hey, you're you're seeing a gap. You like, you know, you're supporting other founders, angel investing, helping with everything there. Was it just like, hey, like I should just start something formalized here on my own and, uh, you know, and I should just really do this myself? I think there were a few things that converge. One is certainly I still had this chip on my shoulder. Launchbit was not a big exit. I wanted to take a bigger swing and, you know, go for the so-called unicorn and whatever you want to call it. But I, I knew that I could do it and that was what I wanted to do. The problem is actually coming up with an idea that you, well, not only are qualified to work on, but also would want to work on a problem you care enough about for decades on end. I wanted to work on something that I just cared so deeply about. And that is really hard to find. And then one day it struck me that actually it was in front of me all along because I had been helping out all these startups and, you know, writing checks here and there, whether it's through 500 or personally. And I realized that actually the problem set that I really understood and cared about was founder problems. It was something that I personally had faced many times in my own founding career knew so many people, founder friends or you know, folks that was backing who had problems. So it was something that I knew so well. And I felt like, gosh, I should just build a company around helping founders and startup ecosystems. And so for us at Hustle Fund, I mean, yes, certainly we want to make a lot of money as a VC, but our mission is actually to help democratize wealth through startups. And we do that by helping startup ecosystems globally with capital, knowledge and networks. Like that is what we do. And so to that end, we do have three funds, but we also have initiatives around, you know, knowledge and networks. How can we help great founders, even if you don't live in Silicon Valley, even if you are not a well-networked person, you know, get a network if you're a great founder or knowledge, you know, to this point about lean startup. I think there is a lot of very early stage knowledge that's out there on the internet now, Lean Startup certainly being one of them. But there's also a lot of insider baseball knowledge here in companies in Silicon Valley, where I think people still do have a leg up here, especially at the later stages in Silicon Valley, playbooks that are shared from this company to that company that are not yet on the internet. And so how can we get more information out there on the internet around tactically, how should you think about things, whether it's hiring or building processes into your business or whatever, customer acquisition, certainly, and, and, you know, help startups become more successful. You originally started Hustle Fund in 2017. I'm just kind of curious, what was the state of pre-seed at that point? Was it, you know, I would say even today, like there's a lot more pre-seed activity going on. What was it like at that point? How has pre-seed, maybe it's changed even slightly over the last few years or, or, or morphed, and especially from your fund one to fund three. I guess just how have you seen pre-seed change if it's changed at all? There are a lot more pre-seed funds now than before. I would still say there are not enough. But back in those days, six years ago, I could count the number of pre-seed funds on one hand globally. Besides angels, I'm not talking angel. I'm talking about institutional firms that would invest pre-revenue. The number of people willing to do that was very, very few. Um, here in the U.S., I think, 
you know, some names come to mind. Charles Hudson from Precursor, certainly like a mentor of mine. He's about a year or two ahead of us. And so I've learned so much from him as we were starting our firm. Um, you know, there are others, Unshackled, Notation, A4, etc. That was kind of it. That was it. Like, if you wanted to be generous, maybe two handfuls. But everyone else was at seed when they were thinking about investing early. And by seed, I mean, investors would say, well, you know, this is great. Come back when you have 10K a month in revenue, which is still early, but it's not that early, right? When you're starting as a, as a, as a founder, at least for me, gosh, you're so proud when you get to like the first $1,000 a month and everyone is poo-pooing that on the investment side. So for us, we wanted to build a firm that could go super early, basically be like your rich aunt or uncle that you don't have for most people. And, but more than be your aunt and uncle, like somebody who actually knows something about starting a business as well and not, not to knock on people's aunt and uncle. So, you know, I think kind of being angel-esque, I guess, but we are an institutional firm. So that's where we wanted to play. Fast forward six years, there are actually a lot more firms now who are doing that. And I really actually love that. I don't see it as competition. I think there needs to be way more investors that precede willing to take a bet. Because I think for many years, this game has been largely for people of privilege who have money. You have to have a certain amount of money to get to kind of that stage of, oh, now we're doing ten or $20,000 per month. And the way that people get there is they max out credit cards or they, you know, work full time job while kind of working on their business on nights and weekends. My business partner did that for many years. And so there are all these things that people do if they don't naturally have money. But in large part, the people who, who do have money are the ones who can play the precede game. And that is what we are trying to change. Just a question on like geography there, like you you're t- we're talking about Tony there and like the setting up the company in Henderson and kind of going against that, kind of going against the grain a little bit there. Wh- what did you want to do with Hustle Fund from kind of day one? Did you see, hey, like we should have pre-seed access just beyond Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, and maybe, you know, just because I run a Canadian podcast, but just, you know, like were you interested in Canada day one, maybe like particular cities or regions in the country. And just I just want to get your thoughts on geography from a pre-seed standpoint. Oh, 100%. I mean, one of the other things that 500 startups influenced me on was this idea of global investing. So with my own personal angel investing, I had only been investing locally because those were the people I knew, right? My friends. But 500 startups was investing literally everywhere in the world. And they they have a huge Canadian portfolio. So through them, actually, I had started going up to Toronto quite a bit. I had never been to Toronto prior to working at 500 Startups. In fact, I'm not even sure. Maybe I'd been to Canada once. And and I realized that actually Toronto in particular, I think is a very vibrant ecosystem. I think it's quite overlooked. There's a lot of talent but not a lot of investors for the level of talent and the number of startups there. And that's a whole nother conversation. But yes, to answer your question, for Hustle Fund, when we started it, we realized that global was the opportunity. I think as we talk about, you know, where there is opportunity to invest, it's it's a confluence of things. Where can you find great startups? And also, you know, if there's too much investor competition, then the valuation goes too high. If there's too little investor, comp- if there are too few investors, then can a company raise more money? And so there are certain places where we tend to invest more than others, where there's sort of that Goldilocks and the three bears sweet spot. And I would say that Toronto is actually one of those places where I feel like it's that sweet spot where there are not so few investors such that a company gets stuck. Uh, if you know, if we're the only ones investing, a company can get stuck. But there are a lot of investors, not not too many investors, but, you know, it's a it's a great ecosystem for that. So, yes, we do have a, a pretty vibrant Canadian portfolio, but I would say, admittedly, almost all of it is in Toronto. Curious your thoughts on if there's kind of like a mindset difference between like a, a Toronto Canadian founder and maybe one that you see in Silicon Valley. Like you mentioned, like the density and competition of investors, obviously that's a difference. And then you also kind of mentioned kind of maybe that insider info or just playbooks that are being shared kind of in in the Bay Area. 
I guess is, but is there any kind of fundamental differences you see on, on kind of mindset or just ways they're thinking about building their business? I have seen the, I don't want to sound condescending, but I've seen the, the sophistication level of the Toronto startup ecosystem as a whole grow incredibly and grow incredibly fast over the last decade. When I first started going to Toronto to look for startups with 500 startups, I would often do this exercise at an event. I would say, hey, let's play VC. If you were a VC, what questions would you want to ask a company? What would you want to know? And just have the room rattle off all these questions. And I do this exercise in a lot of places. Back then, if I went to Stanford, the Stanford students would get everything, all the questions. It's because, it's not because they're smarter than anybody else, it's because they are well-trained. There are so many startups who come out of there and so many alums who go back and share their knowledge and so many BCs who go there to scout, they're well-trained. At the time when I would go to Waterloo and do this exercise, again, very smart students, but not as many startup people going in and out, they would only get questions about product and tech. Nobody would ask questions or list questions about the business, customer acquisition, you know, how do you, how do you think about your priorities in the next six months, et cetera. None of that. And then over the years, I noticed that that started to change a lot. When I would go back and do this exercise, at some point, a few years later, the sophisticated level of the Toronto ecosystem, and I loosely lumped Toronto Waterloo together, was super high. It was like at the same level as here in Silicon Valley. And that is actually a big reason why it has been so easy for us to fund companies in Toronto because it's like, okay, these people know how to run a business. They've really done their homework in what they need to do, what they need to prioritize, how to think about customer acquisition. There's just, they just need to go and do it. But in other startup ecosystems where perhaps people are not as knowledgeable and that's not a knock on them, it means that they are playing from behind and they have to learn so much more just to get to the same starting point as everyone else. So that is actually a big reason why I have funded a number of companies in Toronto as opposed to perhaps other cities. And this applies in the U.S. as well, right? You find most of this level of sophistication in the bigger cities rather than in the smaller ones. I mean, obviously, we have a handful of companies globally in really small cities where the founders have really done their homework and they've done it by basically being on the Internet all day. You can get this level of education by going to YouTube by reading all the blogs, et cetera. But you have to put in way more work than if you're in a city where people are constantly coming in and giving talks about startup. Curious on your thoughts. So like I've had some some other guests on this podcast that have like moved full-time to San Francisco from Toronto or elsewhere in Canada uh, to work on their startup. Uh, I've had others that will like, you know, maybe do half the year back and forth or maybe, you know, go down there for three months to achieve some kind of goal and then head back. Guess what? I guess, what are your thoughts on that, whether you're kind of doing one of those three buckets, do, do you think just spending time in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley is important? Or do you think you can really kind of, you know, access this through hustle fund, your kind of network from an investor and kind of learning online? I think there are two benefits to spending significant time in the San Francisco Bay Area. One is mindset. Like everybody around here is working on a startup for better or for worse. And sometimes, honestly, it's just super annoying to be in a cafe and you're always hearing 10 people behind you pitching somebody else or talking about their startup. It is startup on steroids. And but for people who've never been in that environment before, it can be magical. It's like, wow, there are people like me back in my town. I didn't know anyone else starting a company here. I have all these peers immediately just by going to Koopa Cafe. So I think for people who have never been in that environment, it is magical because you can pick up a peer group very easily. There are meetups, multiple meetups every night. Like, you know, I once joked that I could probably get all of my meals by just going to meetups every single day. Like, I, I really do believe that. And it's probably even too much. Like, you can't go to every meetup that's in town. So there's just a lot. And I think that it's great for people to meet peers and be able to commiserate and talk with other founders who are in the same boat and learn from them. It's a great way to network. And I think the other thing that it does is it levels people up. They see, oh, this person here who also came from halfway around the world is really awesome. Like it, 
it's a little bit like going if you're the only startup in your hometown and all of a sudden now you're going to a place where everybody's working on a startup, you're going to meet people who are better founders than you. And that's going to make you better. And so that's one thing that I think is very helpful for people to have experience. It doesn't mean you need to move here and live here forever. But I think moving here for call it three to six months is extremely helpful for that. I think the other thing on the fundraising front that, you know, we can certainly help our founders get in touch with investors. We've done so many intros for probably 90% of our founders. But for the ones who move here and are really savvy at this, and you have to put in the time and the work, because you're here, you can then go on walks with VCs and catch up with them casually. That's not something you can really do with Zoom calls. Nobody really wants to do that with you like, you know, two two times a month, like people are Zoomed out. But people will hang out with you here and you can start to get yourself into the investor network here. And does that make it easier to raise? Yeah, certainly. People want to fund their friends. That's just sort of human nature. So I do think that is a leg up from the fundraising perspective. But I would say that when people say, oh, I want to move here with that in mind, they don't actually put in the time and work in doing that. And so it doesn't actually help. So you have to be willing to put in the time and effort. I do have a couple of Canadian founders who have done that and do that super well. And that's really helped their funding here. With Hustle Fund, you mentioned earlier, you know, if you work at an accelerator, you can really see kind of like the progress of founders and how important that is from an investor standpoint. I guess when you're, and maybe we could talk specifically about pre-seed, I'm sure at every stage there's different kind of identifiers from a founder perspective. But at pre-seed, what do you think is, again, it, it doesn't have to just be one thing, but what are some critical things that you see early on that you can say, Maybe it's not guaranteed success, but just maybe increases the chances that success will happen. I think, loosely speaking, if we just sort of talk about frameworks for a moment, like, what does it take to build a business? I think ultimately, what is a business? You have, you have costs, and then you have revenue, and you need your revenue to cover your costs. And then you need to be able to create a repeatable process such that your revenue coming in is... Uh, a way that you can predict it or bring it about and constantly be better than your costs, right? Like that's it. At the end of the day, like business is simple. It's the execution of business that's really hard. But conceptually then, how do you do that? Well, I think the first rung is to figure out, okay, do you have something uh, that people want to pay for? Just conceptually, not even, you don't even have to build product. And this is where I think doing some experimentation on the sales side, even if you're not a salesperson, would be just like go and press the flesh and talk with lots of potential customers. And even, you know, my best founders get LOIs or even pre-sales ahead of a product just to validate that demand of the revenue side. And then once you've done that and you kind of go up the first rung of the staircase, it's like, all right, let's build the product to kind of fulfill that, the minimum amount, the minimum viable product, if you will. But then after that, okay, what is the next thing we have to de-risk? We have to get our costs under control. So there's the revenue, there's the cost, and then there's the repeatability, right? Those three things. Let's get the cost under control. How are we going to get more people at a low cost, less than what we are making? And there's experimentation around that. So this is where you see people do experiments around ads and outbound sales or whatever it is. So you have, you have that and also try to get their operational costs under control. So that's the second thing. Well, so it's, you're going up a staircase and you're trying to, go up each staircase one at a time and sometimes you may have to come back a few stairs to to re uh test some ideas but this constant dance of iterating on revenue cost and then repeatability of revenue and cost revenue cost repeatability so to answer your question then like if that's what you have to do and we all know that's what you have to do the hard part is doing it and the best founders are the ones who can one quickly iterate and experiment like figure out what is the least amount of work in the least amount of time, because I, I don't have unlimited runway, to be able to test these three things. And based on the limited data that you have to be able to make decisions on those things. And so that's a combination of being scrappy and frugal with both your time and your money, thinking about what is it you need to de-risk, have some level of sales skills to be able to validate some of this stuff, have some level of product skills, whether it's you or convincing friends to help you to build this thing, that, you know, that's roughly what you need skill set wise. You have to be able to learn quickly, experiment quickly and execute quickly. And it's that speed of execution 
that we think is one of the best leading indicators of what makes for a great founder because you don't have unlimited time to do all of this. What are your views on the current state of pre-seed market? Like obviously, you know, later stage valuations are down. Uh, you know, things have rapidly changed, I think, over the last year, 18 months. What have you seen in the pre-seed? Is it, is it less affected from like, you know, maybe a valuation standpoint? Do you see more founders looking to start stuff? Maybe just due to the nature of like, there's been some layoffs at different companies. I guess just what are you seeing there on the ground? There's still tons of founders starting companies. People who are truly serious about starting their business, they don't care so much about the macro lens. You know, they just want to build their business. Nobody starts a business to fundraise. I think a lot of people get confused or lost in that whole thing. But people start a business to start their business. And so even though fundraising is admittedly a lot tougher, um, people still have something that they want to take a swing at. And it's been amazing. I think this market has filtered out all the tourists, all the people who are in it for the glamour or whatever reasons they have for starting a company. So we've been, we've been very active in backing lots of companies. Even in this month of December, which traditionally a lot of VCs don't companies in a holiday month, but we've been very active. I think this month, if I were to call it, we'll probably, you know, back 10 to 12 companies. And so it's, it's been pretty incredible to see people still building, but that is exactly what I would expect. With Angel Squad, because, you know, you're, with Hustle Fund, you really built this platform to back founders on the pre-seed, but you've also built Angel Squad to create more and better investors. Can we just talk a little bit about what inspired Angel Squad to start? Obviously, you were doing angel investing yourself and maybe just wanted to help others, but just really wanted to talk about that element of Hustle Fund. I think holistically, our company, Hustle Fund, is, is trying to do three things. We're trying to help founders with capital knowledge and networks. And I think to this end, you know, we're on fund three now with our VC fund. And while we do write a number of checks, frankly speaking, there are a lot of great companies that we end up passing on that I think will do incredibly well that we just don't have the capital to bet. There are actually a lot of great companies in the world and there's not enough capital to go around. And so I think that by helping to bring about more funders, helps with this and you know this is like you go and start a fund there's only so many founders you'll be able to um there's only so much one fund can do but our hope is that if we can help catalyze or bring about you know tens of thousands of angels hundreds of thousands of angels globally that not only will their checks help jumpstart more startups sometimes even startups we won't even see or startups that will pass on that you know didn't quite make it but are great and they'll get backing that that's a win for us and so how do we train more angels out there in the world because i think that this is a very niche industry in that nobody goes to school and learns how to either start a company or how to become an angel investor and so how do you get the training that you need to become an angel investor without losing all your money and so that is what we are doing at Hustle Fund to be able to help bring about more angels in the ecosystem. What do you think? You know, I think there's always, you know, either conversations I'm having on my podcast or just out there, there's lots of focus on what makes a great founder. But I would say that there's a little bit less on what makes a great angel investor. And I just want to get a good sense of like, what do you think makes a great angel investor? Uh, what, what are common mistakes people make? Is it, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of angel investing, sometimes investing your friends, can that be kind of like a blind, like blinders there a little bit? Just kind of curious on, you know, what makes a great angel investor? I think it's really important for an angel investor to know why they are angel investing. And everyone's got lots of different reasons. Unlike a VC fund, where the mandate is typically, let's just make the most money possible. And it's all about ROI. For an angel investor, that's not necessarily the case. It's his or her own money. And, you know, you could Put your money towards a vacation or a new car or a new house or you could angel invest, right? You don't have to invest in startups really at all with your own money. And so why is it that you're doing this? And sometimes it's for ROI, strictly ROI. Sometimes it's not strictly for ROI, but you want to make money, but you also want to help 
either a certain group of people or an industry or whatever it may be, or in this case, you know, help your friends, whatever that may be. But I think figuring out what success looks like for you as an angel, that's going to differ and everyone should do that exercise before they start deploying money. But then after you've done that, I think in terms of general qualities, I think, you know, there's certainly the education level around how do you assess? Like, is this a good company? I think not even just, is this a good company? Like, just objectively, can you see where the pitfalls are? You know, I am not always right. Actually, most of the time I'm wrong. So how do you then train other angels if you're wrong all the time? And so for me, you know, our win and what we try to do with Angel Squad is not to say, oh, invest in this company or that company, but rather to help people do the thinking exercise of, okay, let's evaluate all the things we love about the company and all the things that we think are risks. And I think two people could look at that list and go in with very different outcomes of, yes, I'm going to mess with this company. No, I'm not. Because based on just how you assess that. For us, the wind is coming up with the list. And so I think what makes for a great angel investor is, did you uncover everything and come up with that list? Not what was your decision? And then on the portfolio construction side, what does that portfolio construction look like? Very often, you know, you see new angel investors saying, oh, I love this company and getting super excited and then pouring their life savings into it, and then they lose it all and they hate angel investing and they never do it again. And really, you don't need to do that. In this day and age, actually, a lot of angel investors invest with $1,000 checks. So that allows you to get more portfolio diversification. And it's not as inaccessible as you might think, right, at $1,000. If you, let's say, are a professional of some sort, so you make a decent amount of money, but you're not necessarily worth tens of millions of dollars, you know, you could be investing $1,000 into a handful of companies this year, next year, the year after. And within five to 10 years, you can have a portfolio of 50 to 100 companies. That's like a good basket of companies for a first time investor. So just kind of teaching these frameworks is what we try to do. We don't try to say, hey, this is a good investment or that's a bad investment or whatever. Like that's an opinion. And but people should be able to have the tools that are in their belt to be able to come to that. Other than you know, Angel Squad and like platforms where angel investors can like learn to invest and maybe it's slightly different in Silicon Valley where you, you mentioned you go to a coffee shop and people are pitching all around you or you have lots of people to lean on there. Let's say you're maybe in a market more like like a Toronto or maybe even a a secondary market in the U.S. How do you think an angel investor should really get started? Should they have a friend that's angel investing? And hey, can you're writing a 10k check? Can I take a thousand k of that? Like, should you be leveraging that a little bit just to start to kind of build that network, or or not? So I think there are a few things. One is at a high level, if you're starting out with angel investing, it's really important to get what I call lots of reps. Just like anything else, you have to practice, whether it's basketball or the violin or whatever. So you have to see a lot. And so how do you get to see a lot? Well, there are many ways. Actually, one of the great things about the internet now is there are all these syndicate platforms, including AngelList, and you can just literally join every syndicate. They'll all take you. And that allows you to see a lot of deals just on your computer. I think the other thing is that you can tag along with friends. If you have friends who are angel investors, certainly there are angel groups in Toronto and many other places. Um, you can tag along and see a lot there. Um, I kind of feel like that is slower velocity in terms of learning as an angel investor because these groups tend to meet maybe once a month or once a quarter or whatever it is, and then they see like a handful of deals. You want to be seeing deals on steroids. So so that's the, that's the goal. See a lot in a short period of time. Actually, there are a lot of similarities, as you can imagine, to founders, like being able to get a lot of learnings in a short period of time. That's the name of the game. Another way is to become a mentor at accelerator programs. So you'll get to see a whole batch of companies all at once. And, you know, some of these programs run two times a year. There's Techstars Toronto and there's all kinds of other places. But even if you can't make it locally, I'm sure that all of these programs would love to have more volunteer mentors and would be willing to do it over Zoom. I mean, we invest globally, so we don't meet most of our founders in person. And so there are all sorts of activities you can do over the Internet. So you can. If you have the time, you can ping all these accelerator programs, regardless of where they are, and just, you know, offer your help for free and people would take you up on that. And that could be pitch deck review. If you have a particular expertise like engineering or design, you know, you can help mentor in those areas as well. And that helps you see a lot as well. Um, so there are all these ways to see a lot. And obviously it all takes time. So depending on how much you want to pour into this, that's what I would recommend. Of course, the last way 
would be to join Angel Squad at Hustle Fund, and we show our angels a lot, certainly all of our co-investments, et cetera. I'd love to jump in the quick fire round and want to know what your favorite book is. And I know it's hard to pick a favorite sometimes, so maybe even just something you're currently reading or recently read. Yeah, I'll tout a Canadian author. I just read the book um, Buy Back Your Time by Dan Martell. And although I would say that I think that I'm pretty good at uh, time management, so for those of you who are, I still think it's an amazing read. I got a lot of interesting tips that I had never thought about from that book, but I think the TLDR on the book is, you know, everyone is is worried about, I don't know, spending money and doing their stuff, but the one thing that everybody has a limited amount of, of is time. And you can use that time to do all kinds of things, but buying back your time is super important. How can you cleverly think about doing that uh, in inexpensive ways? And so he has a lot of great tips and tricks on how he does that. And I've adopted some of these things myself. One thing that we even did recently was an analysis of our time at Hustle Fund, where it's just a very simple exercise. List all the things that you do in a month, like in you know the 40 hours a week, roughly speaking, or however long you work every week for a month. What percentage of your time do you spend in meetings with your reports, meetings with founders, uh, writing emails, at speaking at conference, whatever it may be, whatever your list is. And um, that helps you kind of visualize, oh, gosh, I tend to spend a lot more time than I thought on this area. And then if you color code it, red, yellow and green, like green, I love doing this. Yellow, it's OK or it depends. And red is I hate doing this. Then you can start to see, OK, what are the areas that actually I want to get off my plate? Um, and that is actually what has been interesting in doing this with the team at Hustle Fund is I found in looking at my teammates spreadsheets that. Some of the things that they absolutely hate are some of the things that I absolutely love and vice versa. So then you should just like switch things around. You don't even have to spend money to do that. Like, why are you doing this? Somebody else loves doing that. Super interesting. I'll have to add that to my list. We're getting close to 2024. So I'm just curious what you're most excited about in the new year personally as well as professionally. On the personal side, for many years, actually, I didn't have hobbies. <laughs> I, you know... For a long time, I was a startup founder and really didn't have time. Um, and then I had two kids, and really didn't have time. And then now, you know, they're they're growing up and uh, Hustle Fund is kind of on its way in year six. So I have a bit more time. And so I started, you know, trying like lots of different activities. But again, to this point of like, what is something that you'll really stick with? I, for a while, it, it really took me a while to figure it out. But I've really gotten into soccer this year. Um, I did play a lot of soccer as a kid and loved it, but just never really thought about playing it as an adult. And it's been super fun. So I'm going to do a lot more of that in 2024. And then on the professional side, you know, I think for us, like we're going through our growing years at Hustle Fund, much like I alluded to in the beginning, uh, Google was going through their growing years. I mean, we don't have 20,000 employees, but we do have a lot of chaos that we need to rein in this year. Um, we're building out even more automation, which is something that I think is a little bit unusual for a VC firm, but it's something we have started over the last year or two and we'll continue to build out so that way we can scale our own processes a, a little bit better. Then last question for me before we open up the mic, but how do you deal with hard times? You, you know, you've been a founder, uh, launching Hustle Fund as a first time emerging manager, I'm sure it was a difficult challenge. Uh, is there things that kind of help you out during those difficult times? Actually, one of my founders said it best. So one of my founders, like many founders, actually, her company went to zero overnight with the start of the pandemic in 2020. And obviously, that was an incredibly jarring and hard time, right? It's like, wow, you know, you were doing millions of dollars in revenue and all of a sudden it went to zero. And she had to lay off everybody. And she was, you know, one day crying on the floor of her office. And then she realized that I asked her, well, what what helped you get through this? Because it's extremely jarring, right? Like talk about just Black Swan events. And she said that, you know, she realized in that moment that actually she was extremely privileged and lucky to be able to do that, to be able to be on the position of crying on her office floor and have this business and, you know, even though it went to zero overnight, like most people don't get the opportunity in the world to even chase that dream. 
And and she was an immigrant who came to the U.S. and, you know, kind of worked her way up, et cetera, and then ended up starting this company. So, like, she had gone through some hardship before in her childhood just to even get to this point. And she said she felt so, so lucky that she was one of the few people in the world to have that opportunity. And that's what keeps her going, even though it's hard. You know, there are a lot of things you could be doing. Nobody is forcing you to start a business. Nobody is forcing us to start a fund. But it is, you know, as long as it's a joy and you want to keep working on it, and obviously not every day is going to be thrills, um, that is an immensely privileged position to be in. And that's something that I think about a lot. I love that. Elizabeth, that was the last question for me. I'd just like to open up the mic to you to leave the listeners with anything you want to leave them with. I think that we're at an incredibly interesting time in the world, especially post-pandemic, because literally the world has opened up. You can learn anything on the internet, and it's been going in that direction for years now. You can work with anybody in the world and that, I would say, is a change or an inflection point from the pandemic. And it's perfectly acceptable. Like, I have so many companies who are working remotely with their teams. So the number of opportunities that are available to you if you want to start a business, just from those two things combined, are extremely accessible now. I think that if you want to go and do it, you have more than any other point in time in history, you have the best shot going after that opportunity now because of those two things. And so I think that's just incredibly inspiring to me. And we should be able to actually see more and more people becoming great founders. If you want it, you can do it. I think that's a great message to leave the episode on. And Elizabeth, it's been a lot of fun. Appreciate you sharing your time and insights with the audience and thanks for coming on. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.